0: Welcome to The Well Community Church on Saturday, May 22nd. Thanks for taking some time out of your long weekend to gather with us and worship together. Because at The Well, we believe that life is better together. And I wanted to pull this shirt back out because I was excited. I was hopeful to hear the announcements from Doug Ford the other day with a bit of a three-stage, three-step plan for the reopening of Ontario. This has been a long haul, which we can all attest to. It's taken a toll on many of us, but I am excited and expectant for what this summer holds. So thank you for continuing to join us online And I look forward to the day that we can actually meet again together in person, that we can worship together and celebrate. And for those of you who have connected with us online, I encourage you to join us. If you're able to, if you're in the area, participate in the in-person gatherings when we're able to do so. And for those of you who are maybe just outside of the uh, area and the region, Um, then I encourage you to continue to participate with us online. Engage with us, connect with us. Let us know how you're doing, who you are, and how we can be praying for you. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, in the description field, there's a link that you can sign a connection card, uh, giving us some of that information so we can add you to our mailing list each week. Um, There's an at-home worship playlist where you can follow along with Apple Music, Spotify, or YouTube. And there's also some prayer requests that have been written and submitted by various people from our church community as well. uh, That just help guide you in a time of prayer to really help create this online experience, um, to help create it and help it become as meaningful as possible. Um, But man, I'm excited for the reopening of Ontario and for what is to come with the Well Community Church. So thank you for your generosity and support throughout this time. If you'd like to continue to partner with us, uh, go to thewellbinbrook.com slash give. And there you can give give to the general offering, you can give to our district ministry fund, and you can give to our global advance fund, which supports the international workers around our world. But thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Um, You know what? Let's just open up in a word of prayer and we will get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together tonight. Thank you for your many blessings. And thank you for being present with us as we've walked through such a dark and challenging year. God, I pray that as we continue to see our province reopen, that we continue to navigate this with love, care, and concern for others. God, I pray that over this long weekend you will give us rest, you will help us recharge, and as we approach the summer months that you'll help us be able to do so with loved ones, with family and friends. And God, I pray for the opportunity for our church to be able to come back together and celebrate that we can come back to your table. God, I thank you for people's generosity, which have gone to continue to support the ministry happening here in Binbrook, as we seek to make Jesus known so that you will transform lives in our community. And God, I pray that you continue to just provide for us, continue to uh, support us in the ministries that are happening and give us wisdom and creativity for new initiatives to continue to expand your kingdom here in Binbrook, across our nation and around our globe. God, I pray for those who are struggling, whether it's with illness, COVID, mental illness, parenting, loneliness, financial distress, whatever it is, God, I pray that you remind us that while we are walking in dark and difficult times, that in you, there is light. In you, we can anchor ourselves to and find hope. God, I pray that we come around those who are struggling as the church, as your hands and feet and support them in any way that we can. And God, I thank you so much for our frontline workers and our government leaders around the world who have been working tirelessly to help bring an end to this pandemic. Thank you for your wisdom, for your grace, and I pray that you just continue to be a source of comfort. Renew us all, Lord, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. And God, tonight I pray that you just open our hearts Fill us with your spirit. Help us hear what you want to say to each and every one of us. And may we be drawn closer to you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Ever since I was a little kid, I had always dreamed of riding a motorbike. Like, I was fascinated with them. There was just something about them, the speed which they could go and take off, but something about the cornering, the way they would take the turns and bends and lean over on their sides just mesmerized me. In fact, my very first public speech I ever gave was in grade six or seven, and it was on the history of the motorbike, and I was passionate. The very first motorbike ride I can remember was on the back of a Honda CBR600 with Steve Fenton. And if you're familiar with our sponsor church, Gateway, you may know Steve, he he attends that church and is involved there. But he took me on my first motorbike ride in grade three, and man, did we take off. And I had the butterflies in my stomach and I'm holding on to him for dear life, and we're just flying down these streets by my parents. And once I had the taste of that, the adrenaline, I knew that I had to get one. Now, my parents weren't thrilled about this. They knew I was going for the motorbike ride, but they never wanted me to have my own, especially while living under their roof. But in 2003, before ever owning a motorbike, my friend Brent and I decided, let's at least get our M1s, our beginner motorcycle license and take lessons. The lessons we took provided their own motorbikes, which was great because again, I didn't have one. I I had never ridden one myself or learned how. But after passing that course that weekend, and they, they gave us our M2s, and once I had waited the allotted time, I was able to go and get my own motorbike. So in September of 2003, I bought this beautiful little red and silver 250cc Kawasaki Ninja. And whew, I love that bike. It was such a great bike to learn on. But I still remember pulling up into my parents' garage. They didn't know that I had gone to get my license or done lessons, and my mom just cried. She cried, I think, every day for a week. Now, they accepted the fact that I had a motorbike, but I think it also increased their prayer life. And they were praying for me constantly, probably to get rid of the motorbike, but to at least be safe on it. In the following summer, 2004, I remember I was riding home from work one day. And we had learned in our lessons that 80% of motorcycle accidents happen between 10 and 2, meaning it happens right in front of you. And more often than not, it's people pulling, making a left turn in front of you. So I was aware of this and I remember driving down. I was coming up to the intersection at Centennial Parkway and King Street, right below the mountain here. And as I was approaching the oncoming lane had an advanced green. So they were making their left turns, but then it went red and I had the green to go through. So I sped up. And as i was going through out of the corner of my eye i saw this minivan just barreling through trying to still make it on the advanced green which he had no chance of making but i also had no chance of getting by so i just remember turning to the right hitting both my brakes and laying this bike down sliding through the intersection and I did not know what to expect, what was gonna happen if I was gonna hit him, if he was gonna run over me. I just dropped to the road and slid. Luckily, I had my jacket on, my gloves, helmet. I only had dress pants and dress shoes, but I walked away without a scratch. My bike, on the other hand, had several, but it was still okay. Now, the officer arrived at the scene and he wasn't able to actually say it was an accident because I didn't get hit. but he did charge the person with an unsafe lane change or left turn, I'm not exactly sure what that was. But I remember while he was sorting all that out, I picked up the phone and I called my mom. And I wanted to let her know what had happened, that I was okay, and I remember her asking, is the bike okay? I'm like, yeah, like, the the bike's okay. It has some cosmetic damage, but I think it runs. And she said, I want you to get back on it and I want you to come home. What? Like, here's a woman who cried for a week that I bought a motorbike. Now she's telling me to get back on it after my first motorbike accident and ride home? Like, are you kidding me? So sure enough, I jumped on the bike, it worked, I rode it home. And later I asked her, why did you want me to get back on the bike? Like I thought for sure, she's like, I'm coming to pick you up, leave it there. And she said, because I didn't want you to become afraid. I didn't want fear to creep in and to take over and to take control. She simply wanted me to come back home. And this is what I want to explore with you tonight, this sense of returning, this sense of coming back, and more importantly, coming back to the table. Last week I shared with you the story of my friend Drew and I floating away on this wooden raft into the middle of a lake because it had become unanchored and we hadn't realized it for hours until the sun was beginning to set. Now I never really wrapped up that story nor do I think that it's that necessary because I'm sitting here, I think you know I'm okay, but the story is also just not that exciting. Once we realized, we just jumped off and swam back to shore. However, I use that story as an analogy to help us visualize that sometimes we can drift away from our anchor, from what grounds us, from what keeps us centered, only to suddenly realize that we're in some pretty deep waters or we've drifted into some pretty extreme positions. But at the end of the day, we need to return home. We need to come back. There's an importance to returning. There's an importance to coming back to what grounds us. It allows us to operate out of this grounded place, out of this this place of love. It enables us to live out of a place of love and not fear. So how do we do this? Well, to start, the writer of Hebrews says that the Christian hope that lies before us, which is grounded in the person of Jesus, is what gives us confidence that this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. So if our anchor is Jesus, then what better way of learning how to return home and come back to the table from a place of love than following the master teacher, our rabbi, Jesus. I'm also using this term coming back to the table intentionally because I'm calling us to return to what grounds us, what anchors us as followers of Jesus. And that's the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist. It's a place where we take the cup, we drink the wine, we eat the bread, we we remember Jesus' sacrifice. And it's a place where we become present to God's presence all around us. So I'm using this term and this phrase intentionally, coming back to the table, coming back to what anchors us. And this past year has brought more isolation and loneliness than most of us have ever experienced before. But there is coming a time in the not so distant future woo-hoo, that we will be returning. That we will be coming back together in workplaces, in sports fields, and arenas and golf courses, yeah! And around one another's tables inside and outside of our homes and a time is coming where we will gather again, come back together as the church. So this is why we have to keep leaning into Jesus, grounding ourselves in him, because the people who Jesus gathers are all sorts of crazy. Oh, you're probably thinking, like, did Kevin just call me crazy? Yes, the, 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 the people who Jesus gathers are all sorts of crazy. Like, come on, like, I can own it. Can't we all own the fact that we all have a little bit of craziness hidden in there somewhere? Like, I love how David White Jr. describes Jesus' selection of the 12 disciples. In the selection of his disciples, Jesus gathered three zealots who were militant nationalists, a tax collector who favored the Sadducee party, six fishermen who lived hand to mouth and were exploited by Roman taxation, one member of the Sicarii party, a radical Jewish group, and a wealthy nobleman who is linked to the Pharisees. This is scandalous. It's like organizing a home church with a few Black Lives Matter protesters, blue collar workers who believe Donald Trump will fix the country, a couple on public assistance while working for minimum wage at McDonald's, a wealthy Republican gentleman who owns an oil refinery down south, and a member of Antifa. It's an understatement to say these men would have loathed being in the same room with each other. Okay, that is awesome. Like, how often do we migrate toward people and groups and churches who are like us, who, who think and act very similar? When we try and polish ourselves up, make ourselves look better, more organized, more put together, we try and fit in. But Jesus, well, he assembles a mess. He's like, I'm gonna change the world with 12 people. Whoop! And it's just a gong show. But I believe it's within the messiness that beauty can blossom. So how do we come back to the table? We practice the way of Jesus. And just as we saw last week, the way of Jesus is the way of love. And love holds space for everyone. In his selection of the 12, Jesus models how we can hold space for one another, no matter how different and diverse and crazy we may be. Jesus gathered a very diverse group of individuals. He brought them together. He created space for them to sit with one another, across the table from one another, to listen to one another and to learn from one another. Jesus held space for differences. It was okay. And in John 15, 15, he even calls them his friends. And in holding space, think about the listening that must have been going on hearing different perspectives, perhaps for the first time, to have so many diverse perspectives and voices and staunchly held positions and beliefs gathered together around the same table. But yet, as they chose to follow Jesus, they entered into this space and they listened together to what he taught them. I read an article recently about Mark Cuban the American billionaire, entrepreneur, TV personality, investor, when he was younger, a mentor of his told him that his greatest weakness was that he didn't know how to listen. He needed to learn how to listen. And Mark shares now that in every meeting he goes into, he re- writes the word listen at the top of his notepad because he knows that he has to hear the other person, what they're saying, where they're coming from, before he comes in and engages. And oftentimes, I'm embarrassed to admit that when I want to listen, I want to listen to people who support my views, who agree with me. Or when I do listen to the voice of the other, well, I want to figure out why they're wrong. I want to figure out how to debate them, where their weakness is. I'm embarrassed because that kind of listening just further divides us. That's not listening. That that's kind of just getting ready to get ammo to fire back. But by Jesus, creating and holding this space, those disciples knew that they could come to the table as they were. Jesus knew who they were when he said, "Come, follow me." there was something new happening among them. Rather than sliding into their usual patterns of hatred and dislike for one another, they were forming and being formed into a new community around the person of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to do the same. I love it. Jesus' first discipleship group, if you will, was a very clear and purposeful message about the kingdom of God, that love holds space for everyone. So why don't we see this more often? Well, I believe it comes down to one word. Fear. Fear is a powerful force. Fear gives us a sense of protection. It gives us a sense of control and safety because it gives us something to focus on. I believe fear, though, puts us at the center of importance. It's our wants, our needs, our anxieties. We end up focusing on the wrong thing. So here's something else we can learn about following the way of Jesus. Love doesn't fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Did you hear that? There is no fear in love. I believe fear and love are somewhat at war with each other. There's this tension, there this yeah, this this war, this conflict. They are mutually exclusive. So Jesus, he invites us into this new way of living. And it's a way that's marked by love. We often read throughout Scripture do not fear, do not be afraid. He invites us to choose love, to open ourselves up to others, to move toward people, to lean in and to listen. But if you reflect on what I just said and really think about those words, what do you feel? Do you feel the vulnerability that's required to open ourselves up to other people in love? And once you feel the vulnerability and you're like, who that that's that's tough, well then what happens next? Does fear creep in? Like I know I feel it, like I, I feel it coming up as as I think about, about exposing myself and, and being vulnerable to others, to to loving. I have all these questions that are based on fear that say, yeah, but what if I'm not accepted? Well, maybe. Well, what, what if, if someone hurts me? Well, maybe. But with Jesus, he says, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear. You are loved. And as I continue to think about returning to the table and making space for one another, I can't help but thinking how Jesus modeled this for us. With Judas. As Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples, he knew that the person who would betray him was sitting there among friends. In Luke twenty-two twenty-one, 21, Jesus says to them, here at this table, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. Whew. Talk about a moment deserving of fear. Jesus understands that he's about to be killed. He's about to be crucified. And the person who sold him for 30 pieces of silver was sitting there with him. So what did Jesus do? He picked up a towel. He wrapped it around his waist. He washed each of the disciples' feet. He picked up the cup. And the bread, he gave thanks to God for it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember my love. And I love this picture of Jesus sitting there with his disciples, eating around the table because this space was infused with love. Despite what was about to happen, Jesus continued to choose love. Judas sat there. Like, my fears are like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going on? Like, Jesus continually chooses to love. And if we keep reading 1 John 4, we look at the next verse. We read verse 18 earlier and now verse 19. It says, we love because God first loved us. We can hold space for others because Jesus first held space for us. It all starts with what or who we anchor ourselves to. Jesus says, do this to remember me because he's inviting them and he's inviting us to keep coming back to him and together. It's about relationship. It's about coming back again and again and again. It's about anchoring ourselves to the person who is love jesus hebrews 10 25 tells us let's not give up meeting together as some people do but let us encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near the message is to keep coming back keep meeting together keep encouraging one another keep anchoring yourself to the person of jesus in whatever way possible, whether it's through online ministry or in-person ministry. The point is relationship. So if you're simply engaged in a passive ministry, uh, just watching the online services, but you don't really have that relationship and community, I'd encourage you to get involved with one. Reach out to one. We might not be your cup of tea. That's okay. Get involved in the local church, please. That's where life transformation happens. That's where Jesus fills us and infuses the space with love. You see, coming back to the table is about making space. And it's about setting the table for others to join you. I've always loved this quote by the late Rachel Held Evans, who says, This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry, because they said yes. And there's always room for more. So why the table? What's so significant about the table? Jesus shows us that there is healing at the table tables bring us together tables are where we we share food with one another we share drinks we share stories and laughter it's at the table we find common ground and i believe this is why jesus said do this eat the bread drink the wine when you come together do this to remember me to remember my sacrifice to remember my love Don't stop coming together. Don't stop coming to the table, for it's here in my presence that you will find healing. In Dan White Jr.'s book, Love Over Fear, he shares the following story. That in May 2011, at about 20,000 feet, Nadav Ben Yehuda, a 24-year-old law student, was almost on top of the world. He only had 300 more meters to go from the peak of Mount Everest, which would have made him the youngest Israeli to summit the highest mountain in the world, but something stopped him short. He noticed a man lying in the snow with no gloves, no oxygen, no shelter. Climbers know instantly 26,000 feet is the death zone. Where the lack of oxygen kills even the best climbers exposure in that zone quickly leads to acute sickness and hypothermia other climbers streamed past the unconscious man in the snow in their quest for the summit but nadav couldn't the man was a turkish climber named Aiden. nadav relinquished his summit bid and sought to rescue Aiden. Nadav tied Aiden to his harness and began the descent, about a nine-hour journey to the nearest base. Nadav said it was very hard to carry him because he was heavy. At times he would gain consciousness but then faint again. When he woke up, he would scream in pain, which made it even more difficult. Because of the rescue attempt, Nadav himself suffered frostbite in four of his fingers, as well as in two toes, and lost permanent sensation in his left hand. Nadav saved the life of Aden. Dan continues on and says, The irony of this story cannot be missed, that Israel and Turkey have long been nations with relations harsher than the mountains of Everest nadav's act not only saved a life but also bridged a distance between two enemy countries when asked why he relinquished his dream of getting to the summit nadav answered because we had shared a meal together earlier in the trip at base camp at the community table nadav found himself sitting across from Aiden. at first it was awkward but they began to talk even share about their country's standoff with each other. This meal helped them humanize each other. Nothing is as small, but as sacred is what transpires at the table. Jesus' approach is uncomplicated. He saw people, he ate with people, and he showed them love. Friends, as we continue to come back to the table, as we prepare to come back to the physical table real soon and celebrate Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion together, as our province moves towards reopening, I pray that we continue to anchor ourselves to Jesus. I pray that we continue to follow his way of life and love. May we hold space for everyone. May we lean in and listen. May we choose love over fear. And friend, as you come back to the table, may you experience Jesus' healing presence. May he restore your mind, your body, your spirit, and your soul. In Jesus' name, amen.